Tonight we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3. And, uh, you know, the last few times I've taught, I've been teaching through Matthew. Just to quickly kind of review what it's all about. Um, Matthew has been called the bridge builder between the two Testaments because it's the first book. And it quotes the Old Testament 125 times. Thus kind of connecting the Old Testament prophecies with the New Testament fulfillments. And it was written to the Jews. And the message was, Jesus is your king, the Messiah. And the whole book of Matthew is about the king revealing his coming kingdom. And it was not what the Jews thought it was going to be. They thought it was going to be this outward, worldly, political takeover. But, and that will happen someday at Jesus' second coming. But the first coming, he came to establish an inward, spiritual, heavenly kingdom. And... Um, in order to be a part of that kingdom, you have to be a spiritual person. The problem is, none of us are. We, we, we're all separated from God and born dead spiritually because of our sin. And so, that's what the gospel is all about. God does a miracle in your life when you repent and believe. He, you're born again and you become a part of that kingdom. And chapter 1, we saw the king's credentials, his lineage, uh, his claim to the throne. And also a little bit of info on his birth, his, his mom and dad, his stepdad, I should say. In chapter 2, um, uh, we saw some people coming to acknowledge him as the king. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't the Jews. It was those wise guys from the east. And they also saw the Lord protecting uh, the king from his enemies. And then the first, we, uh, last time we studied the first 12 verses of chapter 3, and that was, um, we were introduced to the Lord's front man, his publicist, his forerunner, John the Baptist, who had been sent by God to prepare the way for the king to come by calling everybody to repentance. And we looked last time at uh, John 14, 23, which really gives us insight into the importance of repentance uh, towards this kingdom. Uh, 14, 23, um, speaking, uh, Jesus is speaking he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus and the Father will make their home in the heart that loves God. It is obedient to him that, Jesus said, keeps his word, that calls Jesus ruler, that trusts God and desires to be obedient to him, that is no longer in rebellion against God, but has humbled themselves turned from their sin, renounced their sin, repented. And repentance prepares the way for God to come and make his kingdom in your heart, to come and make it the home for his spirit. It plows up the fields, if you will, of our sinful hearts. And it was the only message John had, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Which brings us to our first verse tonight, verse 13 of chapter 3 of Matthew. <clears throat> then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. You know, John has been getting everybody ready, calling everybody to repentance, baptizing people for repentance. And then, all of a sudden, the king arrives. He's there on the scene. And he's coming to be anointed king. With the anointing oil of the Holy Spirit about to be poured out upon him, and Jesus' baptism basically signals the beginning of his ministry, his three years of ministry here on earth. 
Verse 14. And John tried to prevent Jesus, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? You know, when a person submitted to the baptism that people that John called people to, they were basically saying, I'm repenting of my sins. I'm turning from my sins. The only problem with Jesus doing is Jesus didn't have any sins to repent of. And so John rightly said, hey, you know, why are you getting baptized? You know, he acknowledges his righteousness and holiness. And, and we see again the humility of John, which is awesome. You know, Jesus is going to call him, you know, among those born of women, the greatest that ever lived. And a lot of it had to do with his humility, acknowledging that Jesus is the righteous one, and he, John the Baptist, is not. So in verse 15, Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. So why was Jesus baptized? Well, there's several reasons. Um, Number one, Jesus says it, to fulfill all righteousness. It's just the right thing to do in the Father's plan. And, um, you know, Jesus is being our example. as We should follow him in all things. So he's our example. We need to get baptized. Another reason is to affirm John's ministry, to endorse it, to basically say, you know, John is who he said he was, and y'all should have listened to him, you know, and, and just confirming that. Jesus also was baptized to identify with us. He is one of us. He became flesh and dwelt among us. He became a man. And he was here to experience everything that we experienced, including baptism and being tempted by sin. Another reason is to portray the Father's plan, which was, of course, Jesus dying on the cross, being buried, and rising from the dead as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And, and it's pictured in baptism. Buried to rise and walk anew in newness of life. And so that's one of the things. Also to show the Trinity as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit will be all together in this scene. And finally, to anoint the King. Verse 16. When, Jesus had been, when, he, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. John the Baptist had said that God had told him, the one who sent him said, look, The one you see the Spirit descending upon like a dove, that's the one. And he said, I testify, that's who Jesus is. He said that in chapter 1 of John. And he knew Jesus was king. Now, in the Old Testament, oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Oil was also used to anoint a man who had been chosen by God to be king. And in the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus, we see the anointing of Jesus as the chosen of God to be the king of the Jews. And the, and the term um, Messiah, Mashiach in the Hebrew, actually means anointed one. And this is interesting. Why did Jesus need to be um, anointed by the Spirit? He was God. You know, a lot of people, you know, why does he need that? Well, Philippians 2, 6 is talking about Jesus, and it gives us insight. You'll probably recognize this verse. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself 
of no reputation. And that phrase of no reputation in the, in the Greek is a word to make empty. Kno is, is the word. It's the great kenosis, people, the great emptying. Jesus emptied himself when he came. Not of being God, but of his rights, of his privileges, of his power that he possessed, his abilities. And in humility, he placed himself in the lowly position of a servant. As our example, again, in complete submission to God, without any personal rights and privileges, he, he, he placed himself in a position where he was totally reliant on God and the Holy Spirit. That's part of the reason why he prayed all the time, because he was seeking God, seeking God's power, seeking God to fill him so he could do, and as an example to us. And he said in John 5, 19, the Son can do nothing, nothing at all, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. This is our example for following, to follow in seeking to live the Christian life, in praying without ceasing, in seeking the voice of the Father, seeking the leading and empowering of the Spirit continuously in all, at all times. And we must follow Jesus' example to overcome sin and accomplish what God has called us to do. Jesus said, listen, most assuredly, in John 14, 12, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And he said, you know, what do you mean by going to your Father? Well, I go to my Father, you guys don't want me to, but it's to your advantage because when I go, the Holy Spirit is coming back to fill you and empower you. Verse 17. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We know what Jesus was doing for all those years that we don't have record of him, except for, you know, when he's a 12, his parents lost him, you know, for a little time in Jerusalem. But that's it. We know what he was doing. He was pleasing the Father. And I love what Joe Fosht points out. He was pleasing the Father in private. Nobody was watching him, or few were. You know, and that's kind of his way. You know, we need to seek for our lives to please the Lord in public and in private. And outward appearances are really not as important as what's in your heart. If your heart is right, the outward things you do will follow. Um, in Matthew chapter 6, we'll, you know, see that in a, a few times later when I'm teaching. Jesus tells us, don't pray, don't fast, and don't do your good works to be seen by men. Because if that's why you're doing it, then the applause you get is all your reward. He says, look, everything you do, do in secret, in private. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you openly. I also love this word that the Father uses for Jesus, my beloved, my beloved Son. In Romans chapter 1, verse 7, Paul uses the same word in reference to the saints in Rome, which is cool. And you know, God loves the world so much that he sent his son to die for us. And when we respond to that love by repenting and believing, God does this incredible. He, his love springs into action, and he comes and he takes residence in our hearts. And we were created for this very thing, 
to have a loving, that's why you were created, to have a loving relationship with God. And as we get into that, as we develop, as we have this relationship with God, we glorify Him by entering into it and abiding in that loving relationship. Matter of fact, that love is the springboard and the motivation really for everything we're doing. It's what it's, it's supposed to be, that motivation. I love Jude 20. He uses, Jude uses that word again below. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. And that's the thing. Just, just stay there where God is loving you all the time. Don't stray away. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And so, to conclude chapter 3, at his baptism, we see Jesus anointed as king for ministry, anointed with the oil of the Spirit. And we see the loving relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit going on. That loving relationship that extends to us as we repent and by faith in Jesus become born-again members in the family of God. Praise the Lord. (coughs) So, chapter 4. In this first part of chapter 4, we're going to see the king tested and proven righteous. Then Jesus was led up, verse 1, by the Spirit into the wilderness. You know, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism, and the very first thing he does is he leads him out into the wilderness. And this wilderness is not some lovely nature trail that we love to go walk on up in the Great Smoky like that. This is rugged, rocky, dry, tough place. And going there for Jesus was going to be a time of trial. And sometimes, guys, God leads us all into trials. The question is, why? And there's many reasons. Some, just want to point out, number one, to protect us. You remember, and also to grow our faith. At the the feeding of the 5,000, we saw both of these reasons um, Jesus fed the 5,000, and what do the people want to do? They're going to make him king. So to protect them, he sent them out into this, out on the sea into a storm to protect them from getting caught up in that king stuff because it wasn't his time. And then they're in the middle of a storm. They saw Jesus praying for them, walking on the water. They saw his incredible ability, you know, what God, that he was God, and they saw him deliver them, and it grew their faith. So also... The Lord will correct us. And the, and the, the example we usually think of is who? Jonah. Jonah, like God told him, go to Assyria and preach. And, and he didn't like them Assyrians, so he said, uh-uh. And he headed off the other direction on the sea. And so God sent a storm, a trial, to correct him. And of course, you know, he ended up getting thrown into the ocean, swallowed by the fish, and spit up the direction he was supposed to be going from the beginning. You know, those are the tough times, you know, the the trials in our life, and we try and avoid those by trying to do what God wants us to do all along, but also to direct us. Paul, that's what happened when Paul, Paul was a prisoner, he was going to Rome to be before Caesar, but God had a group of people on a little island called Malta that needed to hear what Paul had to say, and so they had this big storm, and they wound up, it was a storm that, a trial that grew their faith and gave them the opportunity to spend time uh, with these people and bless them with the gospel. And finally, and the reason we see here with Jesus in the temptation is to test, prove, and reveal who we are. 
Proverbs 17, verse 3 says, The refining pot is for silver, and the furnace for gold, but God tests the hearts. And so the second part of verse 1 says, that, you know, The Spirit led him up into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, in the Greek, the words test, trial, and temptation are all the same word, which is interesting. What Satan uses to tempt you, God will use to test you. John Corson, I love what he says about this whole situation. He says, James makes it clear in chapter 1, verse 13, that God does not tempt any man to do evil. Like a car manufacturer who puts his car through rigorous tests in order to showcase its capabilities, when God tests you, he's not saying, I hope you don't fall apart. No. He says, I know what I've built into you, and I will not allow you to be tested above what you are able. The test he sends our way is not him saying, I wonder what's going to happen. It's him saying, look what I've done. And God's working us in that ways, guys. So, he says, John continues, this makes murmuring and complaining and whining a sin. Pipe down, God would say to us. It's only a test. I know what I've built into you. I know the work I've done deep within you. If you're tempted by Satan, God intends to test you through and get you through. If you're tested by the Father, Satan will jump in on it and try to tempt you. That's why the Greek word for test and tempt is the same word. So when that temptation comes strolling up to you tomorrow, know it's a test from God and that he won't test you above what you can handle. Praise the Lord. And so Jesus is being, t- is, is being tempted there in the wilderness, and God has put him the test. So we're going to see who he is. Now, Satan, a little word on him, is the prince of the world for now. He rules because Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden and forfeited dominion of the earth to him. And Jesus, also known as the last Adam, came to take back what Adam had lost. Taking back the kingdom will involve spiritual battle. And Satan would not be as successful as this, against this last Adam as he was against the first Adam. In a comparison between the two Adams, their situations in their temptations is very interesting. The first Adam was in the beautiful Garden of Eden. The last Adam was in a barren, desolate wilderness. The first Adam was eating freely of all things. The last Adam, also known as Jesus, had nothing to eat for 40 days. The first Adam was strong physically. The last Adam was weak and about to starve to death. The first Adam blew up. One commentator called him the Adam bomb. He blew it. The last Adam didn't blow it. The first Adam gave in to temptation, the last Adam overcame temptation. The first Adam, that is, mankind's champion, the best we had, he was knocked out by Satan. The last Adam was God himself. He stood in an infinitely more difficult situation, took every punch, the best punches Satan had, never went down, and stood victorious in the end. Praise the Lord. The first Adam sinned, 
and plunged humanity into a lost, hopeless situation. The last Adam did not sin. He demonstrated he was righteous and that he could save us from our lost, hopeless situation. Praise the Lord. So why was Jesus tempted? We said, one, is to reveal who he is. Jesus is God. And James tells us God cannot be tempted to, by sin. So, was it possible, you know, he was, he was fully God and fully man. Was it possible for Jesus to sin? One commentator said, as a man, it was possible for Jesus to sin. But as God, it was certain he would not. Praise the Lord. Second reason, again, is to relate to us, to identify with us. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus experienced our struggles, and now he understands. He has a heart. He empathizes and sympathizes because he's been right there where we've been. Praise the Lord. And the third reason is as an example for us as to how to deal with temptation. Temptation to sin and how to overcome it. 1 John 2, 15-17 says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, these three things he mentions, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of light, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And we're going to see in this temptation, Satan tempting Jesus with all three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and also the, under, the, the underlying motives of self and selfishness. So verse 2, And when Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Probably, yeah, that's a very inspired verse, I think, there. And now, when the tempter came to him, said, If you are the Son of God, command that those stones become bread. Forty days and forty nights of fasting, Jesus was hungry. Now, I've never experienced this, but they say that if you're going to go on a long fast, after, about, after several days, the hunger pains go away, and you don't experience them anymore, until towards the end. And when they do come back, which would, in Jesus' case probably would be about now, the 40th day, you better get something to eat in a hurry because you're about to start starving to death. And, you know, he hadn't eaten in that long time. And so Satan comes and he appeals to this lust of the flesh, this, this need for food, and also his pride. He says, look, if you are the Son of God, you know, it's like little kids. If one little kid says something that's kind of impressive, what do the other kids say? Prove it. That's true. Prove it. So Satan's challenged him. Here's the deal. Jesus didn't, he didn't respond. He knows who he is. He doesn't have to prove anything. In verse 4, Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. <laughs> Jesus responds to the temptation by quoting the word of God with the obvious insinuation from this verse that it is the word that governs his actions, not the hunger of his flesh. You know, we can know the word, but does it govern our actions? James said that we're supposed to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. 
Then the devil took him up to the holy city to set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your feet against the stone. Again, Satan's tempting with the lust of the eyes to make a spectacular showing. And pride, again, he says, if you're the Son of God. And again, Jesus does not respond. And we, through faith, we should know who we are, like Jesus knew, in Christ, and not have to prove anything. But, notice also, Satan knows the Word of God. And he will quote it, and he will twist it, and use it against you to attempt to make you stumble, especially if you don't know the word very well. A friend of mine named Kenny, this has been a long time ago, um, he was in his teens, and uh, he wanted to go street witnessing. He felt led of the Lord to go street witnessing in downtown Atlanta, and so he went down to what was used to be the old Omni Arena. It was in down, that's a long time ago. And he went down there and he started going up and speaking to people. And he went up and talked to this gentleman who had on a, a kind of had a Middle Eastern look, had on a, a kind of a robe and a, a turban and everything. And he started telling him about Jesus Christ. And so the guy started asking him questions from the Bible. What about the, what about, and, and, and Kenny, he got confused and he couldn't, he said, and, and he had to end up saying, you know what, I, I don't know the answer to your question. And then that guy said something that changed his life. He took that, he took out a little Bible out, from, out of the thing. And he pointed at Kenny with that Bible, and he said, I've killed you with your own sword. Tough lesson. But it motivated him. Kenny said, never again. Became determined to know the Word. And we must know the Word of God. Not just individual passages, but the whole thing in its context. We need to know it. And, and you know... 1 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. A.W. Tozer said, Hey, it takes nothing less than a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And you might say, That'll take a long time to know the whole Bible. Well, number one, not as long as you think if you just start doing it, if you just start getting into the Word and studying it. But also, I say, do you have faith? Because God will use what you do know. I mean, how many times, I don't know about you guys, but I, I can tell you how many times I study a verse, and then the Lord uses that very verse that very day in some situation in, or, or, or in one of my friends or somebody is involved in that week. It happens all the time. And that may have been what's going on right here with Jesus. Because the verses that he's quoting here all are from the same three chapters in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8. May have been, could have been, were those the passages? Maybe Jesus had been meditating on that day. Who knows? But Satan and our opponents will quote things out of context, won't they? They'll, and so we must know the scripture in context. The who, the what, the when, the why, the how, so we can know what what the author is truly saying and the point he's making. Because if you don't, well, it's been said a text without a context is often a con where the scripture is twisted and, and made to say something that it doesn't actually say to benefit the person who's saying it. So we must know the word of God. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, it is written, 
You shall not tempt the Lord your God. What Satan is challenging Jesus to do is the same as what the, is the error of the snake handlers when they quote Mark 16. You know, they talk about how those who follow me, they'll take up serpents. And in effect, they're tempting God by seeking to put themselves in dangerous and deadly situations to prove their faith. And, and they're tempting God to keep them from dying as they do something basically intentionally stupid that could kill them. And they fail to note, again, the context. That this was written in the context of missionary service and sharing the gospel. And we saw it happen with Paul at Malta. When he was there, they started a fire. It was in the winter. It was cold. He got some sticks. He put on a fire and a snake warmed by the fire, uh, you know, moving around, attached to him, a poisonous snake. And the, and the natives thought he was going to die from it. But he just shook it off in the fire. And when they saw he didn't, then they were interested. Boom, and they listened to the gospel and what Paul had to say. And God, he'll work in our lives that way as we're seeking to go on mission for him, to share the gospel, but not just to prove it, to tempt God like that. That's not what's going on here. God will not respond to our pride or when we lack faith and challenge him to answer our lack of faith to prove he's real. You know, that what the Pharisees say? Show us a sign. Jesus said, an ad- a, a evil and spiritually adulterous generation seeks a sign, and none will be given it but the resurrection. Because the resurrection is all we need, guys. The resurrection is hard, solid, empirical evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. Nine, eight, uh, verse 8. And again the de- devil took him up on a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I'll give you if you will fall down and worship me. Satan tempts Jesus this time with a shortcut, with a supposed early way out, though it really wasn't. You know, Jesus came to buy back the world that had been lost by uh, Adam's sin. He came to buy it back with his own blood. And, and, And he died to restore everything. And we will reign with him because Jesus was slain. And in the final temptation, Satan is offering Jesus a supposed way around all that pain, all that unimaginable agony, if Jesus would bow down and worship him. But Jesus says, not going to happen. You know, he didn't really care about the field of the earth that Satan was offering. He wanted the treasure that was hidden there, us. And he willingly went to the cross because of his great love for us. Satan's little shortcut wouldn't get him there. Jesus redeemed us by his death and his blood, and he had to pay the penalty for our sin, and he could not and would not be taking Satan's shortcut. Then Jesus said, away with you, Satan, For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. We worship the Lord who raised Jesus from the dead. I like to say this. I've said it a lot of times. You know, all others are dead. Buddha's dead. Confucius is dead. Muhammad's dead. 
L. Ron Hubbard, Mary Baker Eddy, Charles Darwin, Friedrich Nietzsche, Karl Marx, whoever, they're all dead. Or they're going to die. Jesus is alive. Praise the Lord. You know, away with you, Satan. Satan's got nothing to offer. As we know Jesus and we know his word, we know that. And we're able to say, away with you, Satan, with him. We serve the good, perfect, holy, merciful, gracious, loving God. And he's the only Lord worthy of our devotion and service. He is the only God, and there is no other. And he's a wonderful God and Father. And so, away with you, Satan. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. You know, Jesus refused to turn the, bread, the stones into bread, and so angels showed up. I wonder if they were packing some of that angel food cake. You know, it could happen. It's possible. Elijah, remember Elijah when he, Jezebel was after him, the angels came, and what did he eat? Cake, baby. And so... Let me say, when we wait on the Lord, God will always meet our needs, sometimes miraculously. I love Matthew chapter 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Also, Romans 8, 32 says, God didn't spare his son, but gave him up to die, die for us. How will he not also with him freely give us everything? God's going to take care of you, and by faith, man, hold on to that. Don't ever be tempted to do things that you know God doesn't want you to, to meet your needs. God's going to take care of you as you follow him. Well, Jesus wins his first encounter with Satan, but the final victory will come later at the cross. Jesus always wins against Satan, but we do not always win against Satan. So I kind of want to talk about this for a little while. As a matter of fact, in and of ourselves, we are no match for Satan. But if Jesus is with us, and he is, especially when we repent and believe and are born again, if Jesus is with us, if he's for us, the Bible asks the question, who can be against us? The answer is no one, not even the bully Satan. In Christ, we can resist him like Jesus, and we can say, away with you, Satan, and he'll flee from us, as James 5 says. You know, Jesus never gave into temptation, and we see at least three things here in him here that are examples to us as to how to overcome temptation. Number one, we need to know the word. Jesus quoted the word to counter Satan, uh, the temptation Satan brought to him all three times. And the word, notice, the word, not prayer, was his first line of defense against the temptation in Satan. Psalm, Psalm 119 verse 11 says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. You know, the word is, it's like a hedge of truth and protection around our hearts. It's the sword of the Lord that is sharp and extremely effective when coupled with faith and spiritual battle. And we must be in the word, meditating, memorizing on it, as we've already said, hiding it in our heart. So when temptation comes, the Word is already there, and the Spirit can bring it to our remembrance. Number two, like Jesus, we need to know who we are. We need to know who we are in Christ. Jesus didn't have anything to prove to Satan. He knew who he was, and neither do we. By faith, we know we are a new creation in Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. And can say no to sin. 
That is not who we are anymore. No matter how much Satan tries to tell us we are that. When we're born again, we, we become dead to sin, to its control, and alive to God and Jesus. We know God. He has written his law in our minds and hearts, and now we want to keep the law. We want to exceed it. We want to be everything God wants us to be. We don't have to sin. We can say no to temptation by the Spirit who dwells in us. Which brings us to the third point. And very important. Rely on the Spirit. Jesus was anointed by the Spirit when he went out into the wilderness to be tested. And that's what we need to be. We need to always be anointed with God, to rely on his spirit and not on our flesh. Our flesh is weak. Not only was Jesus our example for overcoming temptation, Jesus was the actual way of escape. He is the actual way of escape for us, guys. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And I like what John 14, 6 says. Jesus said, I am the way. The way to overcoming temptation and to living the abundant life is in Jesus. Jesus will be with you, with you, whatever the temptation is. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. By his spirit, he will enable you to overcome and not give in to the temptation. What does Philippians 4.13 say? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that, the context of that was, Paul was speaking of having learned to be content and to not give in to the temptation of discontentment and complaining about God's provision being in, ungrateful for it. So Jesus also will make sure you aren't tempted beyond what you can handle. But if you don't follow Jesus as your Lord, as the ruler of your life, then he can't be the way for you to overcome temptation. And you are probably not born again. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus must be the Lord of your life to be the Savior of your life. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Lord means ruler. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. <coughs> if you haven't repented, believed in, resurrection, uh, in the resurrected Jesus as your Savior, and confessed him as Lord, the ruler of your life, I challenge you, do it now. And God will forgive you of all your sins and will work the miracle of being born again with you. And then when you're born again, God writes his laws in your minds and your hearts. And you want to do. You want to do what God wants you to do. Then we want to be victorious over temptation. We want to stop sinning and be holy. We want to be righteous. But, but if you attempt to do this by relying on your flesh, Paul says in Galatians 3.3, are you so foolish? That's a foolish thing. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be made perfect in the flesh? When we're born again, God changes our desires. That change occurs in our spirit, 
within us. But it doesn't occur in our flesh. In Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. But he also says in Romans 7.18, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. And so, when we're born again, we no longer want to live for the flesh. If you want to live for the flesh, you're probably not born again. We now, when we're born again, want to live for the Spirit, to stop sinning, to be holy and righteous and obedient to Jesus as Lord. But though we want to live for the Spirit, we often make a big mistake. We try to live for the Spirit by the flesh. Can I just say to you, don't do that. Paul says it's foolish. It is a sure way to succumb to temptation over and over. Jesus is your way of escape. The flesh is not. Again, the words of Paul, are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? When we try to make ourselves perfect by the flesh, it's as if we say, okay, Father, thank you for making me born again. Man, you've planted your law in my mind and my heart. Man, now I want to serve you. So I'll take it from here, all right? I'm going to handle it from here on out. I'm, I, I'm, I want to please you. And I'll focus my flesh and discipline it and make it holy and righteous through my own fleshly efforts. Paul says, don't be foolish. Gail Owen says it's like when you do that, you're waking up a dragon. The more you start to fight this fight, it's like you're throwing him meat to make him stronger. You know, when you try to live for the spirit by the flesh, it's like putting the fox in charge of protecting the hen house. <laughs> that is doomed for failure. The fox is not for the chickens. He wants to eat them. Even so, my flesh, you know, he doesn't love the chickens. He lusts after them as food. And even so, my flesh is enmity with the Spirit, Romans 8, 7 says. Galatians 5, 17 says the flesh lusts against the Spirit. Like the fox, the flesh only wants to feed its selfish desires, lust, greed, pride, and therefore can't accomplish the will of God in my life, righteous living that pleases God. Trying to live for the Spirit by the flesh brings only death, destruction, failure, frustration. In Romans 7, 9, Paul declares this, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. You know, we become alive to God for the first ever, time ever when we are born again. The Bible tells us we're born dead in our trespasses and sins. But then Paul says the commandment will come into our lives. Maybe we struggle with something. We're tempted by a sin. And we need and want to overcome it, not to give in to that temptation. And we begin to put the commandment upon ourselves, external rules to be adhered to in order to bring about this change. And instead of bringing change, bringing victory, it brings death. Instead of setting me free from sin, the commandment, listen to this, becomes like a menu. It focuses my mind on sin. That's what Romans 5, 5 through 8 tells us about setting the mind on, on the flesh. It brings death. 
The sin is all I think about when I'm thinking about those rules. Not God and Jesus and the Spirit. Utter failure results because of the weakness and sinfulness of my flesh. Man, and I, God, I know this from experience. When I first got saved, man, I, I, was, I was fired up. I was zealous. And I was, a, you know, a young, you know, zealous businessman, you know, and I was goal-oriented, and I was going to do it, and I'd get up in the morning, and I'd pray, and I'd say, God, I'm going to live for you today. I'd even make lists. Karen will tell you she got tired of these lists because I was always throwing them away at the end of the day. Everything I'm going to do for God. Then I write down what I wasn't going to do that day, sins. End of the day, blew the list. Well, about this time, one of my friends, Ed, who had been, who kind of prayed me into the kingdom, him and a couple of his buddies, they were going to Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain, and uh, he knew my frustration, and he brought me the tapes on Romans 6, 7, and 8 about victory by walking in the Spirit. And, and I was listening to that, but I just wasn't getting it. I kept, you know, just being determined to do it. And the Lord was speaking to my heart, and I remember one day he just spoke to me. So I was riding along the road, and it was like he almost yelled at me. He said, Steve, no rules. Just love me. I mean, that just hit me. It was so profound, what he said. And it changed my lives. It's like what Augustine said. Love God and do as you please. Because if you love God, you're going to do what pleases Him. You know, Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 14 is, is just one of my favorite passages in all the Bible because of the freedom it brings. It all summarizes this for me. Romans 8, verse 12 says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. A debtor is someone who owes a debt. They owe someone something. Paul says, we don't owe the flesh a thing. We're not debtors to the flesh. In fact, we don't owe it second thought or the first effort. You know, Romans 8, 2 says, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And so, what Paul's basically saying is, don't do, but instead by faith, know it is done. Jesus did it, and he will continue to do it. So quit work, working and worship the Lord. Set your mind on him and become like him by the Spirit. Quit trying and trust Jesus and the work of his Spirit in your life. Now, Michael Card wrote a song that was made popular by Amy Grant back in the 80s called I Have Decided, and those words, man, he just, he summarized all this. He said, I have decided I'm going to live like a believer. Turn my back on the deceiver. I'm going to live what I believe. Being good is just a fable. I just can't because I'm not able. I'm going to leave it to the Lord. There's a wealth of things that I profess, I said that I believe, but deep inside, I never changed. I guess I've been deceived. Because a voice inside kept telling me, Oh, you'll change by and by. The Spirit made it clear to me. That kind of life's a lie. So forget the game of being good and your self-righteous pain because the only good inside your heart is the good that Jesus brings. When the world and other people begin to see you change and just trust in the Lord, don't expect Him to applaud. Just keep your eyes on Him and tell yourself, I've become the work of God.
Praise the Lord. That's, that's, that's walking in the Spirit, guys. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, trying to live for the Spirit by the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Quit trying by your flesh and let the Spirit do the dirty work. He will clean you up. He will put to death the deeds of your flesh. He's in the business of changing people. I love what Crawford Loritz says. He says, you know, uh, folks today are into self-analysis, and it can be a good thing. He says, until it becomes self-defining, where you begin to say, this is who I am, that's just the way it is, there's nothing I can do about it. For us born-again Christians, that's bogus. It's not true because the Holy Spirit is in the business of changing us. That's what he does. He transforms us. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. This verse tells us that if we unveil our face that is that we humbly confess, admit, who we are, the sinner, our sins, and focus on the glory, the forgiveness, the grace of God, then we'll be transformed into the same image by the Holy Spirit. Notice it doesn't say we transform ourselves. It says we are being transformed. The Spirit does the dirty work. As Michael Card's song said, we become the work of God. Let him do the heavy lifting. Let him transform us into the image of Jesus as we worship, the image we are worshiping, Jesus Christ. You know, classic Calvary Chapel story Pastor Chuck always tells is about him struggling with the temptation of anger, outbursts of wrath. And he struggled with it for years. And the thing that would make him the maddest was self-inflicted pain. You know, like stubbing your toe, hitting your head on the cabinet. Or one day, when he was in Bible college, he was out, working on a job site, a construction site, trying to make extra money while I was in Bible college. And he'd been witnessing to the guys and trying to, you know, be a, be a witness for the Lord. And he swung that hammer and boom, hit his thumb. And he went ballistic. <laughs> Hulked out. He's <laughs> yelling, took his hammer, hummed it 500 yards outside the thing, you know. <laughs> Just yelling. And then all of a sudden he realized, he felt the eyes and he turned and looked. And every single one of those guys was looking at him hypocrite and it broke him and he, he just he walked on off into the woods just fell down and just was bawling his eyes out crying he said lord i can't do it i can't please lord you've got to do i can't do it and he just quit it, it, it quit thinking about it even a little time passed he was working in the church where he was uh, you know, attending while he's in Bible college, uh, doing some renovation in the basement, he was down there with a few guys. And, they, and, he, and he, again, swung the hammer, boom, hit his thumb. And he went, oh, he, looked, he said, brother, I just hit my thumb so hard. And it hurts. And he realized, I didn't lose it. What happened? He had quit trying to control his temper or anything. God has done what he couldn't do himself. God had taken away that anger that he had as he had confessed it to him and relied on God to do it by his spirit. That's how the Lord works in our lives, guys. We give it up, God changes us. That's too easy. 
Our pride says it. That's too easy. Too bad. That's how it works. Following G He wants us to follow him. He wants us to stay focused on him. Chuck had quit trying. And the Spirit had done the dirty work, putting to death the outbursts of his anger. For those, verse 14, who are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And I might add, daughters of God. You know, we just need to follow Jesus. We just need to focus on and follow the Lord. Fall in love with Jesus. Worship Him. Get down on your knees. Remember, look upon the portrait of love, which is the cross. Examine it. Study it. Get intense about Jesus. Man, I love that. If you haven't, uh, new again. It's a video, you know, that kind of takes in it, and it just shows what Jesus did. I'll watch that just to remind me how much Jesus loves us. Hear the love in his voice as he calls you to follow him. Hear the more beautiful music of Jesus, and you will lose interest in the siren song of sin. Follow his lead. Be led by the Spirit. Seek to be continuously filled with the Spirit and go where he leads you. Galatians 5.16 says it that, just simply. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The key is to get in touch with him. The Spirit will not guide you into sin. The Spirit will not contradict the Word. The Spirit will guide you into all truth, and he will point you to Jesus every time. Now, I love this word led in Romans 8, 14. This is kind of my life verse. This word led in the Greek kind of means um, a force that impels or moves along. And it paints a picture of water overflowing and carrying along like an ocean wave will do. Now, I can dig that. I love to body surf. You catch one of those waves, especially on the East Coast, you can go a long way. And the only way to mess up is to start trying to go faster or something or, or try to help out. Help the wave out, man, and boom, it's over. And you just catch that wave and you ride it. And that's what we do with the Lord. Just, just ride the wave of the Holy Spirit, guys. Catch a wave of the Spirit and let Him carry you along. Just abide in Christ. Just hang out with Him. Just be with Jesus. Remain in His presence and let the living waters Living water flow out of your heart and guide your life. And let his peace rule you. Let it rule you, as Colossians 3.15 says. So, to summarize, verse uh, 12, we don't know the flesh, the second thought, or the first effort. Verse 13, let the Spirit transform you. Let him take care of the dirty work. Do the heavy lifting. Just focus on, verse 14, and follow the Lord. Be led by the Spirit of God. That's what we need to do. You know, why is God making it so easy on us? God does not want us to be always and totally focused on ourselves. And if you try to keep the law, live by a set of rules, that's all you are is focused on yourself, making sure you're keeping the rules. And you don't have time to focus on other people. God wants us free to focus on Him and others, and by His Spirit, He saves us. Not only does He save us, He sanctifies us. Not only does He sanctify us, He provides for us. Not only does He provide for us, He protects us. That's just about everything. 
We don't have anything we need to worry about if we trust Him. Oh, but it's not like I want it. Give it up to Him and trust Him. And just focus on and follow Him. Because He wants us to focus on Him and everybody else. Jesus wants us to be like Him. And He was the only completely and totally other-centered person in the history of the universe. And that's what He wants from us. He wants us to be like that. That's being like Jesus, guys. Now, Jesus gave in to temptation. Never, never gave in to temptation, but sometimes we do. So what do we do when we fail? When we give in to temptation? Again, don't make these fleshly resolves to overcome and put yourself under the law again. Instead, I like the phrase immediate confession. I learned that from Gail Irwin. Just confess your sin immediately. If you're faced with something, if, if you're being, even if you're being tempted, if you're done, just it, confess it immediately. Unveil your face before the Lord. And, on, and, and, and of your faith in Jesus, just, just confess that you have faith in Jesus. And thank God there's no condemnation for that sin you just, you just committed or that temptation you're feeling drawn to. You're not condemned because of what Jesus did on the cross, not because you're being righteous, because of what Jesus did on the cross. That's why you're not condemned. And that's how we have to live. Just immediately confess, let it go. Move on. Focus on the Lord. Follow Him. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't get caught up in that trying to make yourself right because you'll fail. You will. When the commandment comes, sin revives, and you die. Love Jesus. Worship Him. Follow Him. Love others and let that love flow out of you to others. And you will be transformed by the Spirit, into the image of Jesus. You know, that's, that's God's goal for your life. He wants you to be like Jesus. But he's the only one who can get you there. You know, I, the idea of immediate confession I saw worked out in my life through, I, I was learning about it, and I woke up one morning. You ever woke up and you just, you can't, but you're just angry. Have you ever woken up that way? You just, you know, you want to, kill somebody, you know, you're so, and there's no reason, you're just angry. I woke up this morning and I kept, you know, trying to stop being angry, you know, got ready, got dressed, got in my car, was headed down the driveway to go to work. And I just stopped and, I, and I'd been, you know, being taught this idea of just confessing immediately, like it says in, well, in John, 1 John chapter 8 and 9, if you say you're without sin, you know, it's not true. Well, let me read the verse, sorry. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so when I got down, I just said, Lord, I'm sorry, Lord, I feel like just beating somebody up right now. Please forgive me and help me. And I pulled out of my driveway, drove up to the top of the hill, stop sign, turned, drove up another block up to the traffic light at the top of that hill. And it was gone. My anger was gone. God had taken it from me. I couldn't get rid of it. Immediate confession. That's the way, guys. Don't, don't fight it. Just thank God that you're not condemned for what you did. Praise the Lord. Jesus, by His Spirit, 
is the way to overcome temptation and sin and our failures.